Well, if you've looked at your notes, I'm not Tom Adams. Tom has been scheduled to preach this morning, but as of yesterday, he was really sick and unable to continue to work and unable to be here this morning. So uh, we're going to be working through the book of Joel together, and I'm excited for what this word of God has for us. Uh, I was saddened by Tom not being able to preach because if you've heard him, you, like me, just think Tom is a great preacher, a great man of God. And so we're eager for him to find his way back in the pulpit, but in the meantime, certainly heal up. It may help for you to know that your notes are not helpful, and I'm not going to be preaching in Acts. Um, May, by the Lord's will, allude to it, but I'll try to be super clear on when I'm transitioning from point one to two to three, and if I fail, please don't shout out, but just ask me afterwards and we'll work from it from there. In reading from the book of Joel earlier, you may have been struck by the words that we see. The descriptions that are there are graphic and vivid. The, the warnings that God gives us are dramatic. Joel is a book that is part of a greater portion of scripture called the Minor Prophets. And it certainly isn't minor because of its worth. Though some see it as though because it's small. Or some avoid it because it's poetic. And in some ways it feels like it's difficult to capture the immediacy of what Joel is talking about. But if, we, if you spend any time... In the book of Joel at all, you will make no mistake that what is true for Joel and true for the readers and the hearer of Joel's words are certainly true for us. There are things all around us which show us that the world is not stable. And Joel certainly highlights that. You probably don't have to look farther than your own kitchen table to know that the world is not like it ought to be. Or for those of us who watched the news just yesterday and the day before, what's happening in Charlottesville, riots and racism and hatred, we see a world that just looks like it's in the midst of devastation, not to mention the diseases and the earthquakes and the devastation blotting out generations of people. And this, not only in part in our lives, but also certainly in the book of Joel, ultimately points us to the one who is stable. The one who is sovereign, the one who is powerful over all. Scripture here warns us of not just the devastation of which normal everyday people go through, but that devastation ultimately points to the sovereignty and nobility of Christ, but also the reality that Christ in his glory will return for his earth and it will not go well for his enemies. What we experience today may look pale in comparison of what is to come, and Joel here highlights that for us. So if you are a note taker, point number one, I want us to survey just the ruin that takes place in Joel 1 and part of Joel 2. So looking at the ruin that takes place, and there's a transition here between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 describes this ultimate onslaught. It looks like a plague of locusts or grasshoppers. Basically, grasshoppers who have completely taken over everything in their midst, destroying everything. Now, for most of us, that seems rather odd because I remember playing Little League soccer, and when you see a grasshopper, you just step on it, right? But for those of us who may have grown up or have been around the world where there is great drought, 
or great crop devastation, you would know that grasshoppers and locusts can totally destroy anything that is in front of them. They'll even eat paint off of houses. They'll even eat houses. Stopping at nothing, multiplying to the ends of what it seems like. And so Joel opens up with an urgent call of his listeners by highlighting something that has happened in the past, a locust plague that has taken over everything in front of its people. And then I think dramatically in chapter two, he shifts by using what he highlighted in chapter one by previously telling everyone to lament and beg for forgiveness because of what has happened to them in this great plague. He dramatically and unexpectedly, I think, calls the people of Jerusalem to face not just this same threat, but a new threat that is on the horizon. And the plague of the locusts is nothing in comparison than the army that is ultimately going to come. In the first part of chapter two, he describes a new army. But unlike creatures of the field, it looks like this new army is that of people. And they're not coming for land. They're not coming for crops. They're not coming to dry up the wine of the field. They're coming for people. And they will lay waste of them. In chapter 2, the writer shifts the scene dramatically. And here, if you're reading along, even though there are few words and haunting images pop up, you know that there is a heightened sense of this army that is going to come. It's way worse than what locusts could do because this new army is the army of the Lord. And the reason why the army of the Lord is coming because it is now, Joel promises, the day of the Lord. Now, for those of you who don't know what the day of the Lord is, the day of the Lord is simply this, the time when God's patience runs out on his enemies. The time where he can withhold nothing more on his enemies so devastation just destroys everything in front of them. This advancing army of soldiers is set to trample a city. Both chapters have armies, if you will, but chapter 2 we see the Lord's army bearing down violently on evil before them. One of the most graphic pictures we can see in Scripture. No one, nothing can survive the Lord's army on the day of the Lord. Awesome, expressive, intense storytelling is going on in Joel by using something that people could immediately relate to, this locust plague. He's highlighting and heightening of what he promises will come. And what we see is ultimately highlighted more and more throughout scripture that there will be a day where God's patience runs out and he will destroy his enemies. So why is this written to us? Why do you and I need to read it and need to pay attention? We don't go through locust plagues. We don't go through things like this. We might even think the day of the Lord is super far away, no matter how many left behind books you read. Surely it's not gonna be in our generation. Surely it's for other people. But here we see that in zooming in on terror, unfolding before our eyes, this book teaches God's people what we need to be clinging to in desperate times of need. What you do in desperation ultimately defines who you are, right? What you do when the going gets tough, that's who you are. Joel, the author, though, no, though much is not known of him, is certainly in a great time of need. And so he uses this word from the Lord to highlight and show God's greatness and God's glory and God's wrath. And also uniquely this morning, God's mercy in the midst of his wrath. By providence, this book remains timeless. And this book is certainly a warning to you and me. Things that are described here should haunt us and 
cause us to take a step back. It is the day that the Lord's patience unravels and it's terrifying. Just look, let's look together at chapter two, verse two. So just look down again, chapter two, verse two. Joel describes a destructive army with power that destroys animals, people, and everything in front of it. It is described in verse two, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be after them. In verse 3, it's described as fire that devours everything before them. And behind them, a flame continues to burn. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them, a desolate wilderness. And nothing can escape them. In verse 4, their appearance is like that of horses not just horses, like war horses, they run. So these people are described as these galloping creatures and their rumbling sounds like chariots and they leap on the tops of mountains like crackling of a flame of fire, even devouring the stubble as if leaving nothing else behind, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. It continues, before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale when just seeing what's coming after them. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle jostle one another. Each marches in his path and they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city and they run upon the walls. They climb up into houses and they enter through the windows like a thief and the earth quakes before them and the heavens tremble. The day of the Lord is great and awesome and not for those who are on the opposite side of God's army. He says, who can endure it? Now I'm gonna say something incredibly controversial in church. I'm not a big fan of Lord of the Rings, but I have seen them and I don't mind them. But there's this amazing scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, probably like 18 hours into the first one, I can't remember, (laughs) where one army is about to conquer another city. In a lot of ways, it's entertaining. But in a lot of ways, if you you kind of parallel it to the language that we're used to, that of scripture, it's incredibly haunting. Like they're stopping at nothing to take over this city, firing off things over top of it, climbing on the walls. If their ladders are short, they'll just use people as other ladders. They'll burn everything in their sight. They will stop at nothing to destroy everything that is in front of them. And Joel is using something that everyone understands. So maybe we can use something like that, that we all understand conceptually. And he's saying the day of the Lord is even worse than you can imagine. And so as Christians and believers, this should strike us uniquely because the word from Joel is actually written and supposed to be heard by God's people. Now, certainly if you're not a Christian, this word is certainly important for you too. But especially if you count yourself as someone who follows God, that Joel is writing to us too. So we have to take heed of it. The invasion is devastating and it's a warning shot to us. One commentator I read last night said those who will not be provoked out of their security by the word of God, will finally be provoked by God's rod. As if his warning from his word does not provoke you enough, 
he will use his rod to actually wake you up. It says, if he pleases, he can humble and mortify a rebellious people by the most contemptible creatures. So you might read this book of the Bible and think that it doesn't describe you. And that's fine. You know, you look at these people that are going through this and you're like, man, they really have a lot of it coming to them. How do you not get four verses down and go, they must have done something very bad to deserve what's happening in chapter two. They've already got something very bad in chapter one with this locust play. Surely God is bringing more of his destruction on those people. And if you've read the Bible at all, that's typically how we approach God's word, right? You, you read it and you go, yeah, those people have it coming. They're really messed up. And then if you spend some time in Proverbs, you go, ooh, I'm a lot like that person. Maybe move on to other books of the Bible and you go, not only am I like that person, but I don't do what the righteous person does. Or I deserve what that person does. I don't deserve what the other person does. And here we quickly see that within Joel, there are things that spring out that don't just describe those people, but if we're not careful and we don't take heed of God's word, they actually also describe us too. The day of the Lord, at the final reckoning, God's word asks us, will you survive? And friend, I don't know a lot of you here, so I can't speak for you, but you need to honestly ask yourself on the day of the Lord, Will you survive? And why? Let's look at what the Lord says to us in his word. So first we kind of observed and saw the ruins that happened there. We, we see the ruin that takes place when God's army smashes down on God's enemy. And now I want us to take a little bit and see within chapter one, who is this rage against? So the first one, the ruin, the second part, the rage I will alliterate, even on short notice, the ruin and the rage. Who is the rage against? I think there are three distinct sections within the first chapter, and so I want to look at them bit by bit. The first group that the rage of God is against, I'm going to call the socialite or the popular man or the noble person. The first imperative that God has for us in Joel's word is to wake up. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Here, Joel connects two kinds of people. The first one, the most obvious, the drunkard, right? Why wouldn't the Lord wake up the drunkard or want the drunkard to wake up? He's totally being mastered or she is totally being mastered by something outside of her, hoping to almost balm her soul because of life, but there's this second group, even within that small phrase, you drunkards and all you drinkers of wine. The context here is not just the people who are mastered by this outside element, but also those who want to be around other people. Whether it's a wine tasting party or a country club atmosphere or those who just want to be accepted in a group, not to dog on country club people, I grew up on one. And you can bet that I really wanted to go to the pool when other people were at the pool. I wanted to hang out with other people and I wanted them to accept me. No one wants to play Marco Polo by themselves. <laughs> and here he is calling these people to wake up, not just because they are mastered by something, but because they subtly and slowly actually want to be mastered by someone or something. 
The problem here is that these people are enslaved to other people. The reason that they were enslaved to wine is because they thought it would give them good pleasure. And this is what pushes the convicting towards so much deeper. We see at this time these people might be living well. They might be popular or highly thought of. They seek pleasure of consuming things around them or being mastered by other people's affections. I heard a report a couple years ago where there was this one high school that just went berserk for about two or three hours. It was like the kids were all uncontrollable. Not kids, they're like 15, 16, 17. All these young adults were just uncontrollable in their anxiety. And they found out the reason was is because Twitter shut down for three hours. Like they had no idea what to do if they weren't understanding what other people were doing. And that seems far off, doesn't it? But how many of us get really annoyed when someone has their read receipts on, on their text message, and they don't text back? You know that they saw your text, and you're wanting them to return. You want them to be a part of what they're doing. You might even see people having parties, and you're not invited. Or you want to top last year's Christmas party. Spouses, you may want other spouses or other friends' spouses to like your spouse so that you could be accepted. Where the Lord says, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Being seen or being a part of something that gives these people value is ultimately what they thought is their salvation. Who they might be connected by is who their hope ultimately is. Whether it's through the drink or just being around other people who also like to drink what you like to drink. And Joel is saying, wake up, for the day of the Lord is great, and you will not survive it if that is your salvation. The flip side here is what the gospel's message is, is that you can't count on being around other people in such a way that it ultimately brings you heavenly value. You can only count on how God sees you and how you see God. That's what you ought to be mastered by. And Joel is heightening this element by saying, if you're mastered by other people, you will not survive the day of the Lord. And you need to wake up because you're acting like a drunk moron. So take heed, friend. If this is you, do what God commanded these people to do and wake up. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of the wine. God sent the locust to wake these people up, and at what cost will we wake up to? Must he send a plague? Hopefully he sends a plague at least to wake us up. If not, we won't survive. So Joel is using this plague to wake these people up. So the second group of people here the first group are the socialite or the noble person. The second group, maybe more familiar with you, is the family idolater, the person who places their ultimate value in their family. It's probably the most graphic and vivid description, certainly in this text, or maybe for a lot of us, one of the most graphic and vivid descriptions we've ever seen. Look at verse 8. It says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for her bridegroom of her youth. You might see in your mind a picture of a young bride, or maybe an older one, who has already taken engagement pictures for her wedding, maybe even pictures before the actual ceremony, doing the first look. The announcements have gone out. The ceremony is fully prepared. People are even invited, and they come, and the doors open as the aisle is prepared for her entrance. And yet, in a devastating moment, in an instant, 
Her soon-to-be husband is struck down. All the protection of family that she had been looking forward to, maybe for years, are gone. What she had prepared her body for, the same as a virgin, it's of no use. And maybe even what she had prepared her hope in, ultimately, is now laying waste. So she now puts on a sackcloth instead of a beautiful wedding gown, and she wails. And Joel is saying, this is how you need to act if you place your trust in your family as well. Like any other girl, she had been desperately probably looking forward to the wedding. Who doesn't like going to a wedding, much less being a part of one? Finally, someone is committing themselves to you for as long as you both shall live, and it's gone. I officiated a wedding a couple years ago for a close friend. And one of the great things about officiating a wedding is you don't have any stress and you get invited to dinner the night before. So you go to a rehearsal dinner. And so we show up to this rehearsal dinner and like most rehearsal dinners, it's at a restaurant and most restaurants are beside another restaurant. And don't you know that the soon-to-be bride went to the wrong restaurant for what she thought was going to be her rehearsal dinner. So she walks into a room, nothing is set up, no one that she knows is there. And she thinks for an instant... Is this all a dream? Now, it's hilarious five minutes later, right, when she realizes, oh, this is Asian food and we're having fried chicken, so clearly I'm at the wrong place. And she tells the story later and we're all laughing and that's great and fun. But don't you know for an instant the anxiety that what taken place in her heart was that everything was a joke on her? And what if it was real? What if the wedding that she had been preparing for wasn't going to happen? My own wedding, uh, stand at the front, as most grooms do. The groomsmen were to my left. The bridesmaids to, were to my right. The pastor was to my back. And all my friends were in front of me. And there's that one moment where you're waiting for the bride to enter as the doors open. And I don't know if Brooke's changing room was like 3,000 yards away, but we kept waiting and it may have been just a couple of seconds, but the music had died down. I'm standing there looking very impressive. And then I'm kind of wondering, maybe another song, maybe she has more bridesmaids, I don't really know. The doors aren't opening, and then it sinks in. What if she's running away? And it's not funny. And then she finally came. So apparently it was a long ways from the door, and our timing wasn't off, but don't you know that the feelings that, that you and I might think about those experiences and the reality of a bride waiting for her groom to be married to, and when he is struck down in an instant, she wails like a virgin waiting for her groom and puts on a sackcloth and wails. The grain offering and the drink offering that have been reserved for her are cut off from the house of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed and the wine dries up and the oil languishes, the word says. Now, many of you try to take very good care of your family. It's obvious. You try to father well. You try to mother well. You try to child well, if that's a phrase. Your house seems to be in order. Even your dog will sit when guests come over at just the right time. And it's great, but until you actually just take a moment and reflect, not all is well in the household that we put so desperately in our attempts to control. It's far too often that if we just think, we might think, why is this all happening to me? 
I try to balance my checkbook, and why is money always running out? Why do we not look at each other the same way that we used to look at each other 20 years ago, five years ago, six months ago? Why does my kid act the way he does when I hugged him every day? Why am I an embarrassment to myself? If we're not too careful, we just look at and look at the ground and it seems to dry up all around us when we look at this word and reflect on ourselves. At first we saw the warning of taking shelter in the midst of pleasure and wine. And here we are warned that not even the brotherhood, a family or the sisterhood, a family is fully secure from the day of the Lord. Nothing that you trust in here on earth is, is valuable unto your salvation. About a year ago, an older man told me a story of his own family where his daughter married the girl, or his daughter married the man of her dreams, and they quickly became pregnant. And not months later, her husband died in a crash. And for years after that, he realized that he was the one who had to take care of his daughter and his grandchild. And he would say that I would hear for years cries from the upstairs bedroom, and it wasn't my grandchild, it was my daughter who was wailing, wondering what life was going to be like for her for the rest of it and what life was going to be like for her child for the rest of it. And he said, I knew at that moment and all of those moments that I had a sure job that I was going to try with all of my aim to make sure that my grandchild understood that he will never have a father on earth again. But he certainly can have a father in heaven, the heavenly father. What a tremendous, even though awful and tragic story of a man who is looking at his family and in the joy of having a family, in the joy of having a grandchild, is able to say, I'm going to trust, I'm going to teach them to not trust in their family, but to trust in the great father, the true father. If you trust in anything other than the Lord, Joel is telling you to lament like a virgin, wail like one. It gets even more haunting as it goes on, doesn't it? So the first group is a socialite, the second group is a family idolater, and the, first, or in the third group is the worker. Look at verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now, who's Joel talking about here? We might have a mental image of a man or a woman working in the field, obviously, and our minds naturally wonder to someone who is working day in and day out for their own refuge. Right? They're just trying to work and provide for themselves and maybe for other people. But ultimately what he's describing is that these people's jobs are actually, their work is actually their identity. They're one and the same because of the busyness of their jobs. They have little time for true worship and to enjoy what the Lord actually offers in his salvation. They've had little trust because they don't actually trust in what God provides. Being consumed by the fruit of our hands do we actually trust that our work will stand a chance in the day of the Lord? Whether it's a resume or a 401k or even the hopes of a future 401k. Before this, remember, he warned about the danger of putting our security in our family and before that, our acquaintances. 
And here Joel warns us against being people who put their security in their work. And that's actually really difficult for us to do, isn't it? Because if I'm going to meet you, what are the two things that I'm going to do? Hey, I'm Asher, and I do something. Hey, you might be so-and-so, and you're this. Your value to society is blank right after your name. So what are you known for, your family name? And then what do you do for the rest of the society, your work? It's hard not to, right? When I introduce myself to people or when I talk about Brooke to other people, we often fall back on who are you and what do you do? In the first instant, what family do you belong to? And then this instant, what is your occupation? And those are the two things that we often trust in. But here we have this haunting effect of temporal times that should create a longing effect for answers. So if we look at this and we go, I'm sort of like that person and look what happens. Or I'm sort of like this person and look what happens. Or maybe I'm a combination of one or two or three of these things. And then we see the ultimate tension that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Some put their trust in a house that is on a rock and some put their trust in a house that's on sand. Well, I've played in a sandbox. Why would I ever build a house on sand? Until we start to realize what is actual sand in our lives. What can slowly slip away? How we're known by other people who we belong to in family, what we do maybe for a work and too quickly, the things that we think that are sure for our own lives are actually those things that are sand. And even Jesus himself, God himself says, you need to build your life on the rock. And then what does he call himself? The cornerstone. Calls himself the permanent place. So Joel, long before the coming Messiah would come, is saying you need to place your hope and trust not on all these things around you. Though those things are certainly good. Family is great. Work is great. Hanging out with people is really fun. But it will not survive the day of the Lord. And you need to stop it. And then Jesus comes later and gives that paradigm again and asks people to follow him and not follow the things. And what does the rich young ruler do when faced with the opportunity? You talk about a guy that probably had a lot of friends, probably had a cool family, probably had kids that knew exactly what to say, when to say it. Probably had a great job, clearly. He's literally described as rich. And what does he do? In chapter one of Joel, we see a true and real famine, but what famine is really going on here is not the one caused by locusts on the field, but the real famine is the plague that is happening in our hearts. Our our longings, our desires actually look like creation that is being ravaged by things that we are trying to attach on it. And so God is calling us to stop it and to place our trust in him which bring, begs the question, what do we do now? What is the end result for this? Is Joel just a two-chapter book where it's like, hey, you know that one time when things were really bad? Guess what? It's even going to get worse. Have a great time. See you at the temple. No, what he does here is immediately tell us what we are to do to respond. So we see the ruin. And then finally, we see the result. Look at chapter 2, verses 12. Look at the result here. What is the result of the coming of the Lord that we are left to deal with. If you're reading this for the first time, or if you were thousands of years ago hearing this for the first time, or maybe you're hearing this for the 50th time, what then do you do? God tells us through Joel in verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And on that response, it's one of the most comforting things that we can ever read about in Scripture, right? In the midst of all of our despair, in the midst of all of our sin, in the midst of everything we bring on ourselves and also just live with in the circumstances of life, what does God tell us to do? Even now, in the midst of all of this, return to me with all of your heart. The Hebrew there is just saying, turn from. You know, repent of and turn to the Lord. Oftentimes we think of repentance as just feeling bad for something, right? You're in the midst of this sorrow. So to give you an example, um, let's say you're going to paint your house and your spouse says, I want you to paint our house blue. I'd love to live in a blue house, always wanted to my whole life. And you're like, you know what? I love you and I'm going to paint the house blue. And then all of a sudden you paint the house red and your spouse goes, hey, we just went to the eye doctor. You're not colorblind. Why are you painting the house red when we both agree that painting it blue would be better for us and everything else? And you go, oh, let me, re- let me repent of that. I just feel really bad now. Man, that's not repenting. Repenting would be actually you just repainting the house blue instead of red, taking action on where you see your sin and suffering, certainly feeling bad for what you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a breathing person, but then actually correcting that. And God here is saying, don't just feel bad in what you do. Oh, I'm a drunkard. Oh, I work too much. Oh, I worship my family. I feel bad. I'm going to write a bunch of journal entries. no. Return to the Lord, he says. Yet even now, in the midst of everything, return to the Lord. God's people, ultimately after this, so we're going to see two kind of major shifts in the book. God ultimately shows what he's going to do to his enemies and then tells his people to return to him. And then ultimately after that, starting about uh, chapter 2, verse 18, I think, all of the tone noticeably changes to a more triumphant part of the text. So in the midst of despair, he calls them to return to him and to rend their hearts to them. But then after that, when they do, they are met with this triumphal entrance, which is why you and I don't actually have to fear the end of the world or the day of the Lord if we're in Christ, because we've returned to the Lord. At the center here, he says, return to him, this call unlike the laments of chapter one, contains the hope of forgiveness and restoration. The message is clear. Only a return to the Lord will restore these people from a state of death to a realistic state of life. And that's what's often talked about, conversion or repentance or being reconciled to God and other parts of the scripture where God is taking people who are dead in their sins or dead in their trespasses and by then turning to the Lord by faith, they have new life. And all of that is done because of what Jesus did for us. So God himself sends the Son of God to the earth to actually take on the wrath that believers in him ultimately deserve. By dying on the cross, by literally dying on the cross for the sins of the people who believe in him. So when Christians look at this text and see the day of the Lord, it might make us tremble for a little bit. But much like Halloween, it's over in a couple of hours. We can actually rejoice because of what that means for us. God is blotting out forever all sin and despair from our eyes because Jesus took the wrath on himself for us. We'll never face God's wrath if you're in Christ. If you return to the Lord, the army that is coming in chapter two is not for you. And all it is, is by returning to the Lord. The second group of people that are described as a bride, not seeing her bridegroom, The Christian walk is ultimately, as the bride, 
at the beginning or at the front of the stage and the bridegroom, Christ, is coming for us. That's actually the Christian journey where we are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. We are unable to do anything for ourselves. We're unable to save ourselves from God's wrath, but it is actually Christ who comes for us and scoops us up and saves us. When I was really young, we, uh, I lived in a cul-de-sac and all that means is there's no traffic in a cul-de-sac, right? It's the best part of it. No cars drive by. It was us and like a lot of people who never go outside of their house. So we just did nothing in the street. And the lady across from us, she had a grandchild who's about two or three years old, however old you are when you can walk. Two maybe for some, three maybe for me, I don't know. But the grandchild just kind of slowly emerged out of the house and started walking into the street. And the scary part is not the traffic that could happen because it's a cul-de-sac. The scary part is it's in the middle of summer and the street is asphalt. And young kids have really tender feet. Some older kids have really tender feet, but that can literally burn you. And so after just a couple of seconds, the, the child starts crying. And I didn't know what to do. I was 14 years old. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you crying? It's a great day outside. And out busting the door is the mom who immediately recognizes what's happening and scoops up the child and starts wiping the feet and almost in a way bombing the, the tenderness that had shriveled up in what felt like fire. The walk of a Christian is us out in the middle of the street. In a lot of ways, we meant to go there and it was wrong. In a lot of ways, we just happened to come across that street and meant to go there. But either way, we don't know how to get out. We don't know why we feel like we're on fire. We don't know why the world seems like it's falling out, almost like a plague around us. And Jesus is the one who comes for us and actually scoops us out, reviving the soul and giving new life to people who thought they were going to hell and deserved it by all means. And so here we see this epic portrayal of God promising his wrath, but showing also his mercy by saying, not do a thousand push-ups, not get another degree, not do a whole lot of things or finally pass that test but return to the Lord with all of your heart. So he gives us rest by calling us to return to him. Secondly, in our response, we see in verse 13, this amazing image, verse 13, it says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. In chapter one, Joel called the people to respond by lamenting, wailing, and even waking up from their sin and their trust in the things of the world. But here, Joel sounded this great alarm that we need to take note of. He says that we should rend our hearts and not our garments. Joel's great comfort in this apocalyptic picture of the day of the Lord where all of his enemies will be crushed is to rend our hearts to him. Rending your heart, that's not necessarily something that you see on a bumper sticker in the back of a car that you would get from a Christian bookstore. What does it mean to rend your heart? It actually physically means to tear away and give off. So if I'm going to rend you a piece of my bread, we're not going to both nibble on it from both ends and like Lady of the Tramp kind of meet in the middle. I'm actually going to break it off and give it to you. Almost like it's, it's fully yours. And what's amazing, he asks us to rend our hearts to him. He didn't tell us to repair our hearts which so often you and I try to do. Oh, if I can just be good enough and fix myself now, then he'll accept me. He's saying, you aren't good enough and only I can fix you. 
rend your hearts to him. A tremendously comforting thing. The regenerating work of God does such a work in his people that he calls them to rend to him their hearts. Think about it. That's all he wants us to do. The Old Testament several times calls people to circumcise their hearts or or the description that is talked about in their conversion is a heart that is circumcised. But here uniquely in the book of Joel, he says that we should rend our hearts to him as, as if to heighten the idea that practical repentance isn't good enough. It has to be a spiritual repentance. You can't just start doing good things and then God accepts you. God wants the thing that you can't give anyone else. You can only give him. God wants you to rend your heart to him a friend in college who tragically was uh, assaulted physically, sexually, and what the, the scars that were left in her mind were things that were ripped away from her. And she actually became a Christian when someone just told her, hey, you should read the book of Joel. She became a Christian because she came across this text, the word of God that said, rend your hearts and not your garments. She knew that she could follow and worship and be a part of the person who doesn't want the garments like a traitor, an awful person wanted from her earlier. She would follow the Lord who wants her heart. Even as broken as she felt, even as desperate and needy as she thought she was, the Lord wanted the thing that she thought was irreparable. God calls us to return to him. God calls us to rend our hearts to him. Rather than being taken captive by society, family, or work, he wants us to love and enjoy him, knowing full well that he is trustworthy and faithful and merciful in such a way that he sends his own son to ultimately show us the true love that he has for us. And all it takes is for us to rend our hearts to the Lord and return to him. It's like he gives us the the two steps of what to do. Return to the Lord. What do I do when I get there? Rend your hearts. One of my favorite things about the Bible is how it interlocks with each other. So for those of you who don't know, there are very tiny words in the margin of your scriptures, and those are there on purpose. It actually might allow you to see other parts of the Bible. So one of the things you might see in one of your margins here is going forward to the book of Acts, where we might remember like six months ago in our study of Acts, where Peter is quoting this amazing book to people who are asking him and crying out, what are we supposed to do now with this understanding of who Christ is, this understanding of who God is? And Peter himself quotes from this book of Joel. And Peter says, put your faith in Jesus Christ because God has given us this great promise in Joel that all those who call upon the Lord will be saved. And their life will be made new again. Return to the Lord, it says. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Joel says, return to the Lord. Our motive for heartfelt returning to the Lord is is just an outflow of God's character towards us. Because we, we feel and we know that we can return to the Lord. Because even though we see here in the book of Joel this wrathful and righteously angry God, we also see directly in this text as well that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Old Testament frequently repeats 
this and even it's talked about in the New Testament in various different ways that when we turn to the Lord, he is powerful and he is mighty. But like was, what was given to Moses at the very beginning, it seems like, is also given to us. In Exodus 34, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we can read the book of Joel in its entirety. We can read different portions by seeing the highlighted moments of a a tragic plague that was just laying waste to everyone in front of us. And we can also look to what Joel is telling us about the coming day of the Lord. But you and I in Christ don't have to look at that with great fear because Christ in his love is our Lord. Christ in his love and in his goodness is our Lord, not in our affections for other people are not other things that we try to put hope in like our family or not even in our work. Christ is ours forevermore. Remember though the anthem of Joel with its great question in Joel chapter 2 verse 11 it says, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome and who can endure it? No enemy can endure it but those who return to the Lord and rend their hearts to the God of mercy, to the God of grace, to the God who is slow of anger, to the God who is ultimately merciful by showing his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people, those are the ones who can endure it. We need to remember that when we are in Christ, we are on the side of the army that is destroying all evil in front of us. So we hope for the day of the Lord in unique ways because we will endure it because Christ endured all things for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in just utter thankfulness at the warning that you give us. We come to you in thankfulness by what your word truly says to us, that we can turn to you, that we can trust you because of what your son did for us on the cross. God, we thank you for what he did on the cross for us that we know with great truth from your word that when you look at him, you see us as his brothers and his sisters. And we know that when you look at us, you see his righteousness that you've clothed us with. God, we are grateful eternally because of what you've done for us. And now with expectant hearts, we give ourselves over to you in great hope. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.